0: I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 815 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. What we're going to do is we're going to read the first 19 verses of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you that next Sunday morning, we will be receiving communion. So if it's been a while since you received communion as a Christian, we would invite you to be here to partake of that. This is something that Jesus taught us to do regularly. So again, we're going to be doing that and we would invite you to consider that option next Sunday morning either at 9 a.m. first service and 10.30 a.m. the second service. So. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord on this Easter morning. Now, brothers and sisters, we could say, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached. And this is what you believed. But if it it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. May God grant us understanding of it this morning. Let's, Let's bow together as we pray. God and Father... Thank you again for the privilege of public worship. Thank you that Jesus Christ is risen. And Father, our concern this morning is that your written word would be our rule, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our helper, and that your greater glory be our supreme concern as we come to grips, Father, with the absolute necessity of a risen Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we, writes Paul, we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. In one sentence, he leaves his readers in no doubt whatsoever that the Christian faith, the entire Christian faith, stands or falls on the truth of the testimony that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Christ was dead, which launches us into the essence of the gospel. If your Bible's open, look at verse 3. Christ died for our sins, as the Scripture, which would be the Old Testament Scripture referred to. He was, again, if your Bible's open, verse 4, He was buried to, to further underpin that Christ really, truly died and no scam was being run here. And on the third day, verse 4b, he was raised to life according to the same scripture he referred to in verse 3. And actually, the Greek word is graphi, which means these are the sacred writings of the people of God in the Old Testament. He goes on to say, verse 15, that it stands to reason that if Christ has not risen from the dead, that he and others like him have been guilty of telling lies. Lies about God, no less. Because we said, and I've been saying this now for 19 years God raised Christ from the dead. But if it's true, Paul says by dent of argument, if it's true that dead people are not raised, verse 13, then Christ was not raised. Now, Paul the writer here came from a legal background. He, he was an intelligent man and he debated and he would persuade and he dialogued with people all the time about Jesus Christ. And a good lawyer, as you know, makes it their practice to to kind of define the terms accurately so that what needs to be said has to be said. And then after they do that, they begin to make their deductions. They make their deductions so they can support their conclusions. And so what Paul was doing here, he's stating in a kind of just straightforward, categorical way these facts. Fact, Christ died for our sins, just like the Old Testament said. Fact, Christ was buried, again, just like the Old Testament said. Christ was raised, and after three days or he was raised after three days, and after that, he went to the Father. Again, read your Old Testament. And there are many witnesses witnesses, to this alive Christ. And Paul says he's one of them. Conclusion, there was a resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, the context here demands that I tell you that there was a very popular play in Greek culture that had been around a long, long time, and it was called the humanities which was about a son who murdered his mother because his mother murdered his father because the father murdered his daughter okay it's a greek tragedy and it sounds like a movie from lifetime right a little creepy but anyway the lawyer in the play defending the man had this very famous line which became so famous in roman and greek culture that it became true to people. They actually began to believe it. Now, before you say, well, gosh, that won't happen, well, just think with me just for a moment. Uh, three strikes and you're out law. I mean, just think about that. Uh, there's some states that basically make that their law, and it's based on baseball, right? So what if there was five strikes and you're out, or what if there was eight strikes and you're out? Would that somehow make it all better? Hope you see the point. So, so this belief that had gotten to the culture was straight from this quote, and this was the man's quote in the play. Once a man dies and the dust sucks thine his blood, there is no resurrection. There's no resurrection. So they took that, added it to their pagan beliefs, which they had already. And the word on the street in Corinth was that there is no bodily resurrection at all. The idea that dead people will be resurrected in the words of uh, Vecini from the movie The Princess Bride was inconceivable to them. There's no way that these bodies of ours will be resurrected. And that thought then had moved itself into Christ's church in Corinth. And it drove some in the church to ask Paul, uh, verse 12b, you can see it there. Okay, if it is true that there is a resurrection, then okay, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? And he answers them. And it's not my task this morning to answer that question. But he essentially answers them in the resurrection of Jesus. The point being here is this is that after Paul is making that deduction, that straightforward deduction, then what he does say to them is, if there's no resurrection, then there's no Jesus' resurrection. So if there's no Jesus' resurrection, then there's not going to be any general resurrection, because Jesus' resurrection is the basis of all human resurrections. Therefore, he says, if there's no resurrection, in essence, why are you even reading this letter? Right? What, what's the use It's a really good argument, okay? What's the use? Your faith, verse 14, again, if your Bible's open, your faith means nothing if Christ isn't raised from the dead. If there's no resurrection, verse 15, people like me are guilty of telling lies. Verse 18, and dead people, if there's no resurrection, they're going to remain dead. If all there is is now, whether you're religious or not, if the best there is is now, and that's it, verse 19, this is kind of a loose paraphrase, we should just stuff our faces with donuts on Sunday morning. We should sleep in. We should go do something, anything. What's the difference? Because we're going to die anyway. And by the way, we might as well shut the doors to the church. Because the church of Jesus Christ is a pretty goofy place to be if there's no resurrection of the dead. You, you are born, you, you live, you do some stuff, you die, and that's it. That's it. Now, I hope you understand all that's happening here. There were some Christians in Corinth who couldn't shake off their belief of no resurrection taking place, which led Paul to write this great chapter 15. It's the third longest chapter in the New Testament to say, now, come on now. You've got to think this through. I want you to consider these facts. I want you to make these deductions and think because if these facts are not facts, if what I'm telling you is a lie, then okay, Jesus was but Jesus no longer is, right? He was, but he is no longer. And that's what some people say today. He, he was, but he no longer is. So when Jesus promised his followers that he would be uh, with them, Matthew 28, until the end of the age, when he promised them that he would return in a body, Acts chapter one, to for them. And when he promised Hebrews 13, I mean, this is a promise that some of us hold tightly to, that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. That was all a lie. And when Jesus said, uh, Luke 23, 43, to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. paradise. What a sick lie that was. I mean, your moments before your death and your promises in some guy some empty promise. I mean, that's, that's cruel. But of course, Paul is saying, No, 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 Jesus is alive. And so I can say this morning with absolute certainty that he is here by his Holy Spirit in attendance with us at this moment. And he's actually in a body at the right hand of the Father, in his resurrected body, as the Christian's mediator and the Christian's righteousness standing in our place before the throne of God. But again, Paul says, if Jesus is dead, so is the Christian faith. I mean, what's the use? Right, what's the use? Okay, yeah, we can jump on a few of of the Christian teachings, right? And we jump on them, we make application to our life, And yeah, maybe we'll have super-duper kids, and maybe we'll have a super-duper marriage, and maybe we'll get to live 80 or 90 years, and it'll be a pretty decent life. But when it's over, it'll be over. Nothing to look forward to, because that's all there is. Nothing to look forward to but a dry, uh, dusty taste of death in our mouth. That's it. But, again, if Christ is alive, and by the way, if your Bible's open, verses 5, verses 6, 7, and 8... He says that there's over 500 people who had seen Jesus alive, and most of them at that time were still living. So if Christ is alive, then I think you'll agree that something has happened that has changed this world forever. Something has happened that has never happened before, not this way. And this is what it is. The same power of God, which God exercised when he created the universe, he exercised in the rising of his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And God gave Jesus a new body that will never perish, in a body that will never wear down, in a body that will never get sick, it will never get hurt, it will never grow old, it will never do or think bad things ever. And a body just like that will be not for everybody, but for every Christian. Now it's that fact which finds millions of people all around the world in places like this gathering together to affirm publicly and as a congregation and actually personally that Jesus Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. So it's pretty easy for me to suggest this morning in light of this that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pivotal event of all human history. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pivotal event for for your history, for my history, for the history of everyone in the world. Because, the question, how shall it go with those who enter into the presence of God unforgiven is answered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can unholy people enter into the presence of a holy God is answered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's a lot more. The answer to why, why am I here on this planet? Why, why do I exist? How can I know lasting peace? Why, why is there even a church? That's all answered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So can I suggest to you this morning, this Easter morning, that the answer to everything, and I want you to test me on this, the answer to everything is answered only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that this event, this resurrection event, has transformed everything. My son... My son, who is away at university, who, who I just missed terribly this week, he gave he and I the assignment last year of watching every movie that was nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. There was eight of them. We saw all eight. And, and one of the movies that you might know was called "The Theory of Everything," which by the way, my wife was watching by all last night, or yesterday, excuse me. It was crazy. I didn't tell her about this, but anyway. And the story goes that there's this renowned um, physicist and cosmologist and an atheist named Stephen Hawking. And if you've seen it, you know that on one level, it's a true story of romance. Parts of it are quite beautiful. On another level, it's a story of the triumph of the human will over a debilitating illness. However, beneath everything, there's this question that is kind of the heartbeat of the movie. And the question is, how does everything in this universe works? How does it work? So if you know anything about Stephen Hawking, you'll know he earned a PhD for his studies of the black holes. And when he was awarded the PhD, he said to the interview committee that, and I'm quoting him, it would be wonderful if you could find one simple, elegant way to explain everything. It's a great, great thought, right? One simple, elegant way to explain everything. And that became his life quest. He's actually still trying to answer that question. And one of the most frequently questions that come to him by all kinds of people is essentially this, Professor Hawking, can you prove that God does not exist? And his standard reply, and I'm going to quote now, is this, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star on the outer suburbs of one of 100,000 million galaxies. So it's difficult to believe in a God who would care about us or even notice our existence. So what he's saying essentially is we're just a bit of interstellar dust. We're going to live, we're going to die, and we are really no big deal at all. Now I want you to listen to the response of another brilliant man. He was a king. He was the king of Israel. It's actually a poem. in Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, And you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain to it. So basically what he's saying, it's beyond me, God. So, so both Professor Hawking and King David are saying that, that it's all beyond them. Hawking, it's beyond me, and I don't believe. David, it's beyond me, and I do believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? You see, the storyline of the Bible is not about a God who doesn't care, who lives way out there. No, it's the reverse. When you read your Bible, it's a story of the eternal God who created everyone and everything and he stepped into time and he stepped into a human body. He came in as a child, born through the womb of a woman. The world he came into was a world just like ours, broken and sick and unable to fix itself. So he came into the world to deal with all this. So Jesus said that this world is broken because of sin. He would say that over and over again. It's broken because human beings have broken. it. We determined not to do what God said to do, and we determined to do what God said not to do, which is why our lives are broken, because we take the clear yeses and the clear no's of God, and we turn them on their head. So that sense of alienation that many of us know, that sense of, you know, what's the use of all this? The sense of, I bet some of you have, of just boredom about life the sense of what's going to happen to me and will I be okay or will I ever be okay? The Bible says all this is because we are alienated from God, estranged from him on account of our rebellion. Now, if that was it, that would be pretty terrible news. But the wonderful story of the Bible is that the God who has been so rejected by men and women has actually come to save and seek men and women because of the greatness of his love. I bet everyone in this room knows this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And that's what happens to people apart from Christ. They, they perish, but if they believe in him, they will have eternal life. So you see, this is the great truth of the Bible. This is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's come into this world and he is the answer to everything. Because, you know, if you think about it, you don't have to be a philosopher to consider the question, what is the meaning of life? And who has the answer? Any sensible person who cares about life even a bit has that question. And I bet you ask it almost every day, right? You, you get up in the morning. Why is it that we do what we do over and over again, right? We, we get up, we eat, we go to work, we come home, we go to bed. Well, we eat and go to bed and we do it all over again. Now, that has to be Let me say it like this. There has to be a reason to that more than just to simply survive. And and please, God, there has to be a reason bigger than just, okay, we're going to work and save so that the last 25 years of our life, we can just chill. (coughs) Excuse me. And so many people try to do their best to answer the question, What's the meaning of life? And many people fill it with stuff. And some people fill it with sex. And some with drugs. And some people try to fill it through our children, our grandchildren. And some people try to answer that question through education and accomplishments. And some try to answer it by just doing nothing and avoiding everyone and everything. But that question has to be answered. Because if we can't answer that question, then there's no sense to why we are here. In the way to glory, it's a lecture by C.S. Lewis. He, he gave thought to this, and I just want you to consider carefully what he said. He says, there is no way that our desires can be satisfied in the immediacy of what we have now. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memories of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the real thing itself, they'll turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we haven't found, the echo of a tune we haven't heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Now, do you know what he's saying? He's saying essentially what the Bible is saying, that God has set eternity into the heart of every man and every woman. And that space is so vast that there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can have. There's no place that we can go that can fill that void. Only God can. Therefore, and please listen carefully, We know distinctively that we are made for something else other than now. We know distinctly that there's got to be more than just this life. And we know distinctively that everything true about our eternal destiny and everything true about what comes after our death must exercise some pressure on the now. That question has to be answered now before we expire. And that is what Paul is telling the church in this chapter. He's saying, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the answer. That makes sense of everything. It makes sense of Christianity. It answers the question, what's the use? It answers the question, what's next after death? Victor Franco. That's three really wise people we've quoted from. Victor Franco, who wrote the book, The Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor. He's a professor of neurology. This is what he said. Men and women's main concern is not to, to gain pleasure or to avoid pain, but rather to see meaning in their life. And it's true, right? I mean, people will go through a whole lot of pain to get some meaning. People will try to have a whole lot of pleasure to get some meaning in their life. And of course, the Bible addresses that question. The Bible says, okay, this is why you were born. This is why your life matters. This is why the what comes to you after your life ends question matters. And guess what? The answer, in fact, the only answer is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a Christian this morning is one who believes in the risen Christ who believes in the risen Lord. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to believe and nothing to have hope for. The Christian believes in a living Lord and we believe in a dying Savior, a Lord who in his death atoned for sins. Otherwise, what am I going to say to God when I stand before him on that day? Am I going to say, it's me? That will not work. I need someone to bear my sin, someone to take my punishment for it and to fix my problem. And God has done that in Jesus. This is why Good Friday and Easter, the church always holds them together. It just can't be resurrection. It has to be death and resurrection. So these are the things the church of Jesus Christ affirms Sunday by Sunday. Christ died for sin. Christ was raised by God. And Christ will return to judge the world. And in that context... If we think about those affirmations, Christ died, Christ was raised, Christ will return. If we think that that somehow it was written into the very psyche of the first disciples of Jesus Christ, then you've never read your Bible close enough. Because I guarantee you, they were not saying on Friday night after the crucifixion, okay, here we go, we just have a little bit of time and everything's going to be great. Jesus is going to pop out of the grave. You know what? Let's surprise Jesus. Let's go to the tomb and wait for him. Oh, it'll be terrific. He'll love it. He'll love it. That was not happening. John chapter 20, verse 19. They were hiding in fear of the Jews. In fact, the very first disciples, they couldn't even make sense of a resurrection. Jesus had told them about it in Mark 9, and they had this question, well, what does that mean? They didn't understand it. Now, if you think with me just for a moment, Time Magazine had an article about three years ago, and they said the disciples of Christ created the resurrection of Jesus in their heads. So it was the faith of people which created the fact. And they said that the disciples knew there wasn't a resurrection, but they created this story to kind of keep the Christian thing going on a bit longer. And what a great job they did, if that was the truth. But I want you to think with me. If you're going to actually do that, Don't you think you would have painted a much rosier picture in the gospel record of your behavior? So so when Jesus appeared, they would have said, oh, we recognized him and we fell into his arms and we held hands and we went all the way back to the house and it was terrific. We even had an Easter egg hunt after it was all over. No, you got to read the gospels. They're, They're so raw and so real. Let me just give you one example. They see Jesus on the beach, the resurrected Jesus on the beach, and they're like, who's that? They don't even recognize him. And one of them says, well, I'm not going to ask him who he is. You ask him who he is. So, so I want you to see what's going on here. What is it that brings these guys out of hiding? See, that's the question you should ask when you read your Bible. How do you explain this radical change in these disciples who are coming out of hiding and they're not afraid anymore? Because I can tell you that they didn't come out of hiding to, to preach on the streets of Jerusalem You know what? Here's a few good tips for marriage. Here's a few good tips for your family. And oh, here's some good tips on finance. They didn't do that. They didn't come out of hiding to preach. Hey, everybody, we need to be nicer. We need to feed the world. And here's some religious tips. No. What did they say? This is what they said. Acts chapter 2. This Jesus whom you crucified and was in the tomb, God raised up because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's what they said. They said, this Jesus whom you crucified and you turned your back on was dead and he was buried, but God raised him up. And the reason he's alive is because it's impossible for him to remain dead. He said that he was the resurrection and he said he was the life. He said, in essence, that he's the answer to everything. Now, loved ones, that is vastly different from some vague gibber jabber about the benefits of a religious life or um, we need to take back our nation or you're feeling down today. Well, here's a few Christian pick-me-ups. That's far more radical than that. They were not preaching on the streets of Jerusalem, the memory. They were not preaching on the streets of Jerusalem because they had some kind of mystical encounter they, had, they were not preaching on the streets of Jerusalem because they saw a ghost or a spirit. They were preaching, Jesus Christ is alive. Question, why were they preaching that? Answer, and it's pretty simple. They were preaching, Jesus is alive because they saw him alive, because he was alive. They ate with him, they spoke to him, he, he spoke to them. And one of them, we know for sure, named Thomas, he even poked at Jesus. And then Jesus commissioned them. He said, okay, guys, we need to spread this good news that I am alive, alive, not as a a revitalized corpse. That was Lazarus, right? That was the widow of Nain's son. They were a revitalized corpse. They just got a new expiration date. But Jesus is alive forever. His resurrection is different. It breaks the bounds of anything that we will ever know on this earth. The resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of everybody's body who places their trust in Him. Right? Christ died for sin, buried, risen, alive. He's coming back. And in Him, you can live forever in a new body which is indestructible. Now think on that. A new body which is indestructible. In a new place which is incredible and will always be wonderful. And the two things which got in the way because we went our own way, namely sin and death. Jesus put away by his suffering and death on the cross. And the resurrection is the period at the end of the sentence, it is finished. And that's it. That's the good news. That's why people get together week by week and declare his worth. Declare his worth. Well, let me leave it there and just ask two questions for every one of us in the room. Question number one, in fact, if you have the worship folder, you'll see them there. And I kind of did that on purpose. I was hoping maybe you'd go home today and write out your answers. Question number one, do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus? Now, let me be very clear. When the Bible speaks of belief, this is not just an uh, uh, intellectual assent. Let me just give you an example. We might believe in something, but that something bears no consequence in our lives at all. So we, we, we might believe that the medicine will cure us. But we've actually never taken the medicine. So we remain the same and nothing's changed. That's not the belief that the Bible speaks of. The belief is something which is received and you've taken into yourself. The belief changes the fundamental direction of your life. And the belief is personal and it involves trusting Jesus. And the belief belief is communal because you become part of his family, the church. That's the first question. Do you, do I believe in Jesus? Second question, do you belong to Jesus? Believing, you see, will work itself out in belonging. Always. He was raised, I'll be raised, because I belong to him. He said, go, I will go, because I belong to him. And a place like this makes complete sense, because I belong to Jesus. So Paul says, everybody dies. In chapter 15, he says, we are all children of Adam. We are flawed, we are broken, and our life is winding down. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. So here's the truth. By nature, we are all children of Adam. However, only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, are we placed into Christ and become children of God. Now, that's so important that I'm going to say it again. By nature, every one of us in this room are children of Adam. But by grace, through faith, we are placed into Christ and we become children of God. So Paul says, first Jesus Christ as the first fruits by his resurrection, and this is showing us what is waiting for us. And then Paul says, when Jesus comes back, those who belong to Christ will be with Christ forever in that indestructible body. Now, it makes pretty clear sense. So again, do you belong to Christ? And do you see how absolutely necessary the answer to that question is? Let me close with this. I came across the story this week. It's a true story of a young lady who was asked by her colleague at work, What is it that gives you meaning in your life? Try to answer that question. What is it that gives you meaning in your life? She didn't have an answer. She asked her colleague, Well, what's yours? He says, Well, I'm a Christian and I live to please Jesus Christ. I live for Christ. He went on to say, Well, why don't you think about that question and let's talk again on Friday and let's see if you have an answer. Well, she did. And this is what she said, and I'm quoting. For three days, the question hit me like a ton of bricks. When was the last time I asked myself, why am I here and what do I believe? But a stirring had started in me. I started weeping in frustration because I didn't have an answer to the question. So she reaches out to her friend. Her friend connects her to another friend. And this friend meets her at a coffee shop and begins to explain the gospel to her. But... She doesn't explain the gospel in a way that says, well, honey, you're a wonderful person and God is a wonderful God and God rewards nice people. And if you try your best, God will appreciate that and everything will be fine. That's not what she said. This is what she said. Again, I'm quoting from the letter. She told me I was born as a child of wrath, enslaved to my sin and enemy of God. She said this meant eternal separation from God. And then she told me the good news. She explained that ever since the fall of man, God has had wrath towards us, and that because he is perfect, he is holy, we deserve this. She told me there is nothing I can do to be in a right standing with God, but that God sent Jesus to pay the price of my past, present, and future sins, and through faith in my Savior Jesus, and based on his work and not my own, that I would be saved from my sin if I would repent and believe. This was the first time the gospel made sense. I knew it was true. And that night alone in my home, I cried out to God for the first time. And I told him, I believe in Jesus. She believed in him. And she belonged to him. So the only question is, how about you? Right? The greatest question that you'll ever try to answer is, do I belong to Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus? And for 2,000 years, the Christians have been saying that Jesus is the only answer to everything, every question you'll ever have. Thank you for being here this morning. I hope you have a lovely Easter Sunday. And I hope everyone in this room can rest in this truth, that Christ was put to death for our sin, that he was buried, and he's risen. And that you believe in him and you really truly belong to him. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, thank you for your help this morning. May the truth that we spoke of, the truth that Jesus Christ is alive, may it transform everyone listening. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all who are His. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen.